0: Our um, passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in one day, nor let, us, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen for them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore let him that thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation, we'll provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us to so that we might know you. And Father, we pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that we would come to know you in a better and more deeper way. We pray, Father, that we would hear the voice of the Lord Jesus speaking to us and we might go forth today and this week and be obedient to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good
1: morning. In 1905, the Spanish philosopher George Santayana wrote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In 1987, the American novelist, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. said, I've got news for Mr. Santayana, we're doomed to repeat the past no matter what. That's what it is to be alive. Now, which one got it right? I think Vonnegut got the first half right and the second half wrong. The God who created both of those men spoke on the matter long before either of them existed. And according to him, repeating the sins and failures of past generations because we refuse to learn from their experience is not what it means to be alive. It's what it means to be a fool. It is the path of death, not the path of life. Ignoring what God's Word clearly sets before us about the spiritual failures and successes of those who came before us it is a surefire way for us to become spiritual shipwrecks ourselves. The entire 11th chapter of Hebrews sets before us the faithful perseverance of dozens of generations of saints who walked the earth and walked the path of faith before any of us were here. And that chapter calls us to very deliberately follow in their footsteps and it's not accidental that all of those examples in Hebrews 11 are from the Old Testament just like the examples in the passage that we're looking at this morning those are positive examples these are negative examples throughout both testaments of his word God has called each new generation of his people to be warned by the failures of our forefathers and to imitate the the much rarer uh, examples of faithfulness, the successes in the lives of our forefathers. God's constant appeal to us through all of those examples is take heed. Pay attention. You need to know this. When I planned to do this passage on this particular Sunday, I didn't, didn't know at that point that we'd be having baptisms but that works out really well because there's actually a strong connection between baptisms and what goes on in this passage. Uh, At the very heart of of a believer's baptism is identification with our perfect mediator, Christ. Romans 6 tells us that the real baptism that our physical baptism pictures is our union with and identification with Jesus in his death And resurrection because we are in Christ his victory over sin is now our victory and his resurrection is now our resurrection that perfect baptism that brings every believer in Christ into perfect and eternal union with Christ is God's work alone that perfect baptism is not accomplished through the physical ceremony it's pictured and it's remembered through the ceremony. The physical, tangible observance is is supposed to point us to the intangible spiritual reality. John the Baptist clearly distinguished between those two aspects of baptism in John chapter 1 when he recounted what happened when he first met Jesus. He said, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him this is the one who baptizes in the holy spirit baptism in water is the symbol but the substance to which the symbol points is not physical it's spiritual to observe the physical memorial without having our attention drawn Powerfully to the spiritual reality that it pictures would be to completely miss the point. Now, if you're wondering what all of that has to do with this morning's passage, stay with me for a minute. In chapter 8, Paul addressed the practice of some of the Corinthian believers of eating food that might have been sacrificed to idols. He rebuked believers who refused to limit their liberty in regard to eating such food in order to avoid putting a stumbling block in the path of their brothers and sisters who had been saved out of generations of paganism. Here in chapter 10, Paul ratchets up that rebuke. Some of the Corinthian saints were actually participating in pagan sacrificial feasts and eating food that they knew had been sacrificed to idols. And it's clear from Paul's rebuke in this chapter, chapter 10, that their participation in those pagan parties went much further than just enjoying a meal. What Paul says to those saints in this chapter sets the stage for his rebuke in chapter 11 against the Corinthians for corrupting the sacred meal that Jesus Has made the exclusive possession of his children, the Lord's table. At the heart of the Corinthians' sin in regard to both the pagan sacrificial feasts and the Lord's table is that they failed to rightly see the intangible in the tangible. More to the point, they failed to rightly see the spiritual in the physical as they ate and drank and partied together with unbelievers at those pagan sacrificial feasts, they were saying, in effect, there's no problem here because idols are fake gods. So this is really just plain old meat and wine. Nothing to get excited about. But as we'll see next time in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells these Corinthians that even though idols are fake, that they're non-existent gods, Demons are very, very real, and they're very, very active in everything associated with idol worship and pagan sacrificial feasts, just as they were in the Old Testament. Demons are also very, very active when people come together in drunkenness, carousing, and sexual self-indulgence. All of that played into the the experience of participating in pagan sacrificial feasts. Even if you weren't doing all of it, it was going on all around you. The Corinthians failed to see the spiritual activity of Satan and his demons in the physical aspects of those pagan feasts. And that set them up to fall to many temptations that Satan and his demons his minions delight in setting before the people of God. But the more foundational error that set them up for those errors was their failure to see and to value the spiritual, intangible work of God in his gracious, physical provision for them. In short, they failed to see the sacred in the common now from one perspective in the bible sacred and common are opposite ideas they're antonyms that which is common is touched by the curse of our sin and is therefore by definition not sacred right it's not holy but at the very heart of every believer's redemption story is the reality that, that our holy God redeems that which is common and cursed He makes all things new. The touch of God's hand infuses common things with sacred value and significance. The earthly is sanctified by the heavenly. And we as God's people are supposed to see His hand in everything. Paul's very strong exhortation in this morning's passage is that the Corinthian saints must pay close attention to what happened with the generation of God's people that lived very long before they did because the Corinthians were already repeating the error of that generation. In the days of Moses, Israel had failed to see the mighty hand of God in their day-to-day experience or to value His activity in their midst even though his gracious provision was everywhere in their midst every moment in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter Paul uses language that should have been very familiar to believers the believers in Corinth language that points to two observances that Jesus commanded his church to practice baptism and the Lord's table but Paul applies that new covenant language to events that happened long ago in the days of Moses in the generation of Israelites that God had just redeemed out of slavery in Egypt Paul says that those Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea the cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness was the visible manifestation of God's presence leading them protecting them and even showing them where to set up their camp God had already brought them through the midst of a sea, parting its waters and bringing them through on dry ground, and then immediately afterward drowning the entire Egyptian army in that same place by bringing those waters over their head. These were miraculous interventions of God that that very powerfully proved His love for Israel and His sovereign control over all of His creation and over every aspect of their well-being. Paul's language here, they were baptized into Moses, is filled with significance. Moses was the mediator of God's redemptive work of his covenant relationship with his people under the covenant with Moses, the, the, the law. Moses represented the entire nation of Israel Every time he spoke with God, and every time God spoke with him, Moses represented God to the nation as God led them under the cloud and in the sea, and as God revealed his law to them. See, that's what a mediator does. A mediator, the mediator of a covenant, represents each party in the covenant to the other party, he stands in the place of those that he represents. Through the identification, the baptism of all Israel into Moses, every word that God spoke to Moses thus became the treasured possession of the entire nation. Every miraculous intervention that God performed through Moses to deliver the people affected not just Moses, but every Israelite. God sustained Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. By providing manna from heaven and water from a rock in the desert. Not a spring, a rock. And everything that Israel knew about those gracious provisions had been explained, had been declared and explained to them by God through his mediator, Moses. So they knew what was going on. Paul speaks here of God's provision for Israel's physical sustenance during the 40 years of their wilderness wanderings. But but guys, Paul very deliberately identifies those physical provisions as fundamentally spiritual in nature and origin. He says, all Israel ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed or accompanied them. And the rock was Christ. The manna that God rained down from heaven to feed the Israelites each day, double portion, of course, on the last day, or the, on, on Fridays to get them through Saturdays when they could not, the Sabbath, when they could not collect the manna. The, the manna that God rained down from heaven to take care of their physical nourishment each day lasted for 40 years. The water that God brought forth from a rock in the desert satisfied their physical thirst. Without those miraculous supernatural provisions to physically sustain them, the nation of Israel, a nation of about 2 million slaves, would have died very quickly in the harsh desert wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. But three times in two verses, Paul describes God's physical provision for the Israelites as spiritual. Spiritual food, spiritual drink, from a spiritual rock. And three times in those same verses, he declares that all of the Israelites received these spiritual blessings from the hand of Yahweh, the one true God. In verse 4, he explicitly connects this provision for Israel in the days of Moses with Christ with Jesus. Again, he says, all, of, all Israel drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament and you look up references to, to the, a rock, Israel's rock, that's Yahweh. That's, that's the one true God, is the rock and refuge of Israel. And Paul is saying that same rock, that's Jesus. Now, what's the point of all this? <laughs> Beloved, I believe at least one of the most foundational points here is that God's physical, physical provision for us is supposed to point us to Him. The Creator of, of all things marvelously inhabits everything that touches the lives of His people, including every physical, material thing. The physical is supposed to point us to the spiritual. Now, the pantheist would say God is all things, but the Word of God says God is in, He inhabits, He he touches and uses all things, okay? I remember when my kids were younger, they would say, Daddy, why do you have to spiritualize everything? In other words, why does everything have to come with a spiritual lesson? Attached to it. My answer was always the same. (laughs) It's because everything is spiritual. Everything that God sets before us in this life touches our relationship with Him. And if it doesn't, we've missed something. When we see the daily realities of living as a child of God in this cursed world as too boring or too mundane to have sacred significance, what we miss is... God. Verses 6 through 11 of chapter 10 are one paragraph and one thought. And if you've got your Bible, look for a moment at verse 6 and verse 11. Those are bookends to the paragraph. Both verse 6 and verse 11 declare that the sins of Israel and the judgments by God against Israel, spoken of between the two verses, were intended by God to serve as examples to us. That is, to the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to the two bookends first. Verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's explicit appeal here is You, the church of Jesus Christ, you are supposed to learn from the failures of those who came before you, not repeat those failures like you're doing. Between those two bookends in verses seven through 10, Paul gets specific about the evil things that the Israelites craved. He sternly warns the Corinthian saints through four examples, one in each verse, not to repeat the sins that the Israelites committed after God had delivered them out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt. Miraculously, miraculously. Now bear in mind that Paul is talking to his beloved brethren here. He says it over and over. To his brothers and sisters in Christ. The first thing he commands the Corinthians not to do, really to stop doing, is in verse 7. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. While that accusation could have could have been applied to every generation of Israelites in the Old Testament. Paul's quote here from Exodus 32 tells us that he's talking specifically about the very first pagan party that the Israelites ever threw. Right after God delivered them from bondage in Egypt it was the golden calf incident. Paul says, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. That word play is called an understatement. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai after meeting with God for 40 days on top of that mountain, he found that the Israelites had gathered up all the gold that God has so graciously given to them from the hand of the Egyptians. You, know, you remember what happened? God made the Egyptians so scared of the God of Israel that they just handed their possessions over to Israel. And Israel walked out without wielding a weapon. They walked out with the spoils of battle as if they had defeated the nation of Egypt. And that included a bunch of gold. They gathered up their gold and they commissioned Aaron to fashion a golden calf and they named that calf Yahweh and they worshiped it and they said this is our God who led us out of Egypt they bowed down to their man-made image they filled their stomachs with food they became drunk with wine and they almost certainly abandoned godly sexual constraints and they had a great big self-indulgent party right there at the foot of Mount Sinai at the same time that the one true God who had actually redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt was displaying His glory in the cloud at the top of Mount Sinai so that every Israelite could see it. The second incident that Paul cites from Israel's history to warn the Corinthians is in verse 8. Let us not act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 died in one day. The incident he's referring to here is from Numbers chapter 25, and it had a lot in common with the golden calf incident. The men of Israel, quote, played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. If you keep reading, especially, you get to chapter 31, 35, it says that Balaam is the one who orchestrated that. He couldn't manage to curse the Israelites, so he found a way to entice the Israelites and make them fall into idolatry they played the harlot with the daughters of Moab that means they had sex with pagan women that sexual abandon happened in the context of a pagan sacrificial feast in which the Israelites ate food sacrificed to the Midianite god Baal And they bowed down to the abominable gods of Moab, the same gods to whom the Moabites regularly offered up their own children as burnt offerings. The third incident from Israel's history is in verse 9. Let us not test Yahweh. Let us not test the Lord as some of them did. And it says God sent fiery serpents. The incident there, of course, is Numbers 21. The, the incident with the, with the fiery serpents and, and the, the bronze serpent. It's a, big, it's a long story, but suffice it to say that it didn't turn out real well. <laughs> that God, God relented from the judgment, but, but not until a lot of Israelites had died. Putting God to the test in this incident the, the, in verse nine, I wanna explain what does it mean that they tested God? A lot of Christians have trouble figuring out what that means. Throughout the Bible, putting God to the test means requiring God to prove his trustworthiness as opposed to trusting him on the basis of the proof he has already provided. Let me say that again. Testing God means requiring God to prove his trustworthiness as opposed to trusting him on the basis of the proof that he has already provided. You ever hear Christians say, I want God to show me that he loves me what about the cross god demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us when we were enemies of god christ died for us guys if god never did one other thing for me in my earthly life i would know that he loves me i don't need more proof If you consider the ten mighty plagues that God poured out on Egypt in order to bring about Israel's release from captivity and the events that immediately followed those plagues like the parting of the sea and the daily provision of bread out of heaven and water from a rock, you'll have a context for understanding what I'm talking about when I say the proof that He has already provided. Israel had Lots of proof of the trustworthiness of God. Of the the fact that his promise to take care of them, to go up with them, it was was rock solid. They didn't have anything to worry about. But they put him to the test on more than one occasion. In fact, they made quite a habit of it. (laughs) And here in Numbers 21, they repeated a pattern that had started very soon after God brought them out of Egypt. You can go back to Exodus 17, and that's one of the early incidents where God says, you're testing me. Stop testing me. All right. And, and why? It says, Numbers 20, 21, it says the people became impatient because of the journey. So they spoke against God and Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and water, and we loathe this miserable food. You see the, the contradiction? There's no food, and we loathe this food. God punished Israel for putting them to the test by, again, sending fiery serpents to bite them with deadly venom. Somewhere around twenty-three to 24,000 Israelites died that day. The first thing to notice about the Israelites' complaint here against God and against God's appointed mediator is that the complaint was a bald-faced lie. God had been faithfully giving Israel manna from heaven every day since right after they came out of Egypt. He had given them an abundance of water from rock, not just a little water, rivers of water. God gave every Israelite all that they needed every day. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 6, He would do for all of us. And as Paul already said, the food and water that God so faithfully provided Was spiritual food and spiritual drink. It came directly from the hand of God through His miraculous intervention to faithfully provide for them in a way that could only be attributed to His mighty intervention. They complained that God was letting them die of starvation and thirst while He was miraculously providing for them every single day. See, the problem with sin is it's not logical. It's not based on evidence. The last part of their statement is the only accurate part. We loathe this miserable food. When the things that God graciously gives to us as His beloved children stop impressing us when we find them boring and mundane and even miserable, the problem is not with the provision. And it's not with the provider. The problem is with our hearts. The fourth incident that Paul cites from Israel's history of spiritual failures is verse 10. Do not grumble against God as some of them did. Again, Israel had a very long history of grumbling against God and against God's messengers. So this accusation could apply to many points in Israel's storied history. But Paul is, I think he's likely referring here to Korah's rebellion recorded in Numbers 16, Korah and his clan incited a mutiny against the God-ordained authority of Moses and Aaron. Korah wanted his family to replace Aaron's family as the priestly line. Again, there's a lot to the story, but in the end, God miraculously attested to, he affirmed his choice of Moses and of, of Aaron and his line to be the priestly line. And he opened up the ground to swallow up the entire clan of Korah and every Israelite who had stood with him in that rebellion. In that incident, and then in a second one that follows right after it on its heels, tens of thousands of Israelites again perished. Paul wraps up this four-point remembrance of Israel's repeated faithlessness toward God by saying again to the Corinthians in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The Corinthian saints were falling into the same snares that the Israelites had fallen into. The Corinthians lived in a city whose public life revolved around the worship of idols at these grand pagan parties that always included an abundance of food that had been offered up to those idols before being consumed by men. They included enough wine to get everybody at the party falling down drunk. They included an abundant disregard for God's design for sexual purity. But this pattern of sin was not limited to the Corinthian saints. In 1 Peter 4 verse 3, Peter wrote to other churches saying for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Sound familiar? In every place and in every generation of the church, there is an ever-present temptation to become dissatisfied with living life on God's terms and to go after the comforts and pleasures offered by this godless world. For those believers who think they are exempt from falling to such temptations, Paul has one more critical admonition in verse 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I'll never forget the day I heard Howard Hendricks talk about the grievous danger of spiritual pride. Uh, he told the story of a married fourth-year seminary student who came to, to Hendricks' seminar called The Virile Private Life, which was about being vigilant about sexual purity. And that was one of the key points to the, to the seminar. In the last session of the seminar, Hendricks exhorted the students to maintain constant vigilance against sexual temptation because every Christian is vulnerable to fall. that temptation at any time, doesn't matter how young or how old you are. That student that was about to graduate came up to Dr. Hendricks and said something to this effect, and I can't remember the exact words, but, Prof, you know you're preaching to the choir. This is a room full of men who've already devoted themselves to the ministry of the Word of God. You don't want to make these guys paranoid about falling to sexual sin, do you? Prof. Hendricks sternly warned that young man to hear what he had already said. In effect, Prof. said to him what Paul says to us here, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He told that young man that his attitude about this was putting him in grievous danger. At the end of that semester, the young man graduated from seminary. He began ministering as the pastor of a church and within only months... He fell into sexual sin with a staff member, a female staff member of the church that destroyed his reputation, his marriage, and his ministry. When you sift through the wreckage after a believer's walk with God has crashed and burned, what you find at the crash site is always the same thing. Plain old ugly arrogance. Complacency, beloved, comes from arrogance. Lack of vigilance comes from an exalted view of one's own abilities. And just as reliably, we find that simple humility is always right at the very heart of every faithful Christian walk. Utter, prayerful dependence on God. We need to face the fact that we, you and I, are a lot more like the ancient Israelites than we want to admit. And we need to know that we set ourselves up to fall to temptations when we fail to learn from the failures of those who came before us. How will the examples, warnings, and exhortations that Paul sets before us here fortify us against sin? First, we will be reminded to look for the sacred in the day to day. We don't have manna from heaven or water from rocks. At least I haven't had received any of that. Uh, But beloved, our food and our drink is far better than theirs. The spiritual food and spiritual drink that we have received from the hand of God is the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't have to receive that gift daily because it availed to redeem us from sin once for all, but we get to remember that indescribable gift together every Sunday. God intends for us to treat that remembrance as sacred because the one whom we remember in it is the greatest gift ever given. If you find the weekly observance of the Lord's Table too routine, or too repetitive to to keep your attention. The problem, beloved, is not with the remembrance. It's a failure to look with the spiritual eyes that God has given you and to be humbly grateful for the incomparable gift that He has given you together with all of the saints of God. God has given us countless gifts in Jesus Christ. Our lives are filled with Ephesians 1.3, filled with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Even in the things that we can touch and smell and taste and see and hear. 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5 says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The cure to craving evil things is delighting in good things, rightly valuing the abundant gifts that come from God's hand. The cure to sexual self-indulgence is humble gratitude to God that finds its greatest satisfaction in living on God's terms because we know that's the path of life. That's the path of peace. That's the path of well-being. The cure to our faithless testing of God God that calls His faithfulness into question, that asks Him to prove again what He's already proven. The cure is humble gratitude for the unfathomable riches of Christ that God has lavished upon every one of His children and upon us together as a family. The Bride of Christ. The cure to our endless grumbling is humble gratitude that sees the abundant kindness of God in the thousand things that He has given to us and gives to us daily. That sees the extraordinary kindness of God in things that we share together as the one people of God. Do you gratefully value what God has already given to you? Or are your eyes so fixed on what you don't have that you never really notice what you do have in Christ. One of the greatest words of counsel I ever received was from a guy named Steve Porter who was who's a programmer analyst with Exxon Corporation. I was a baby Christian. He went to the church I went to in, in Houston. and He said to me, stop worrying about what you don't have and put your eyes on what God has given you. It's so simple and it's amazing what a transformation it makes in our lives and in our hearts do you see the sacred in the day-to-day are you even looking for it do you see the hand of god working all around you all the time that's what's going on that's actually what's happening do you see it are you looking for it there's one more error that we're prone to make that sets us up to fall into the, the sins of our forefathers and that error is believing that we haven't actually been given what we need to resist sin. And this is a very, very common error among Christians. Paul's last word to the Corinthian saints in this passage is not another warning or exhortation. It is a promise of God to every one of his children. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide also the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a marvelous encouragement, especially coming right on the heels of the stern rebuke and warnings that that Paul has just given to the church. There are two parts to this exceedingly important promise. The first is there's no such thing as a new temptation. That's worth thinking about, guys. I've found myself quite often lately saying that the temptations that are faced, especially by young believers today, have reached a new level in our day. Now, I'm convinced that it's true that some certain temptations, temptation to pornography, to sexual devia- deviation from God's design, temptations to waste ridiculous amounts of time on utterly useless pursuits have reached new levels of intensity in the current cultural and technological context in which we live. But even if the full court press of the world, the flesh, and the devil have found new and more ever-present ways to put temptation in the believer's face, it doesn't mean that we're facing new temptations there is nothing new under the sun paul intended for his christian readers and for every christian in every age who reads these words to know that the temptations that you and i face the temptations that our children face right now are the same temptations that have confronted the people of god ever since the serpent tempted adam and eve in the garden And they're the same temptations that the author and perfecter of faith faced when he was here occupying mortal flesh as we still do. There's no such thing as a new temptation and there is no such thing as a temptation that you and I as the children of the living God are unable to resist. That does not exist. Endurance and escape are not the same thing. But knowing that God provides a way of escape, and the literal Greek here is a mountain pass. I love that imagery. Fortifies us to endure a temptation until we come upon that exit door. I can handle anything that is set before me if I know that it cannot overcome me. That it cannot. That it does not have power over me. The promise here is not one that applies in some situations, beloved. It applies in all situations for every child of God. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to endure. He will not allow you to face a temptation you cannot resist. There are so many Christians who live as if they are proverbial sitting ducks Not because they have to, but because they become convinced that that's what they are. They're convinced that God just hasn't really given them what they actually need to stand firm against the temptations that bombard them from every side. So, what they're really saying is it's God's fault when they fail. Because He hasn't given them what they need. God repeatedly and emphatically says to His children in His Word that that is a lie. And guys, that is one of the most pernicious lies that exists on this earth is that God has not enabled His children to live in a godly manner. Listen to the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 4. And and, and I want to make the point, this is about Christ, not about you. Last few verses of Hebrews 4, and I'm almost done here. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because the one who enables us to live the Christian life is Jesus, we never get to say, I can't do this. Our enablement to stand firm against temptation is not about us. It's about Him. It's His strength. It's His righteousness. If you've convinced yourself that you don't have what you need to resist temptation, beloved, you've thrown in the towel before you've ever entered the battle. And you've done so in denial of that which is true of you. But if you count this promise as absolutely true every day of your life, you'll never be able to justify your sin with the lie that says you're unable to not sin. To not commit that sin. You will be be amazed at how enabling it is to count yourself able by the unchanging grace of God to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Let's pray. Dear Father, humble us to pay attention to the gracious lessons that you have to teach us through the lives of those who have gone before us. Humble us to see your, your mighty and gracious hand at work in all things and to live every day of our lives with hearts that are overflowing with gratitude to the one who has given us every good thing and every perfect gift in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His precious name that we pray.
0: Amen.